Well, it's Sunday. Welcome to the main course. Oh. Is it working? Yeah. Jack, are you there? Yeah, yeah, we're good. <laughs> um, yeah, this is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Um, we are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn at 261 Moore Street. J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Okay, all right. Okay, Sorry, what about the Bears? What about in. the Bears? We're not, we're not excited uh, about like Chicago? I'd like to see Green Bay win. I mean... Uh, You'd rather see Green Bay win than Chicago? Yeah, Green Bay Wait, is a very tiny town. We have to read the sponsor job. Come on, okay. order. Let's I thought have the an order, Jets were our sponsor. An order to the chaos. Did the check come in from the New York Jets, Jack? That's... that's that's, that's next year's. Okay. So we are sponsored today by the Hearst Ranch. Awesome company. An awesome company. The Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single source supplier of free range, all natural, grass fed, and grass finished beef. And since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. And we always love the Hearst Ranch sponsor. They're great. We do love the Hearst Ranch. Well, this is going to be a great show. This is basically a meat Theme this is show. a charcuterie show. Charcuterie show. We have uh, Taylor Boddicker is going to be on. Uh, from the Fatted Calf From the Fatted Calf in San Francisco, which is, is he's a signature site at all of the uh, farmer's markets there. Then we're going to have Anya Fernald, who is the found, one of the founders of So Food oh, uh, in exciting. the United States. And she is uh, uh, an amazing expert uh, on uh, charcuterie. And she is the organizer. She did So Food Nation. She does Eat Real, which is the largest food truck. Uh, event in the world. Um, Orléans. Uh, no, Orléans? Orléans. Orléans. Et votre nom? Dernier nom? Dufour. Orléans Dufour. Orléans Dufour. Un charcutier who comes to us uh, from Bordeaux. From Bordeaux, and he is the, the head charcutier of, of uh, Bar Balud and Danielle Balud's restaurant. And, and we all know how fantastic yeah, that is. That is unusual yeah. charcuterie. So uh, we're a big fan of, uh, of uh, Orléans. Then we have the head of Green Market, Michael Hurwitz. And by the way, I should say about Orléans, where this is a call to all of our French listeners, all of our French uh, co-conspirators in overthrowing bad food. Um, and then uh, we have Michael Michael Horowitz, the head of Green Market, going to talk about meat in New York. And then we're going to talk to uh, Mr. Dingle. Uh, and he's going to talk to us about um, Foodie Link. Right, so. Mark Dingle. Um, to just backtrack a little bit, though, Patrick, um, the Michael Hurwitz segment, Michael's going to come into the studio, but that's going to be a regular feature um, yes. where we talk about all things Green Market with Michael about once every month or six weeks. Check in at new programs, new events, new markets, um, you know, specific things that are seasonal or, or exciting or whatever is happening at the Green Market, especially during these kind of doldrum winter days. It's always good to remember that the, you know, there are our farmers still coming down yeah. from upstate. Um, the farmers markets are still going strong they need in your most help areas. More than now, yeah. now more than ever. This and is charcuterie a great time. is actually the perfect yeah. gateway to talk about. Well, one, that's why I wanted. I really wanted Michael to come in and talk to us about what's happening um, in terms of the of the proteins center of the plate. Um, at well, the we farmers have markets. So. Also, yeah, we're going to talk about so all meats, meats for an hour and a half, and then we're also uh, want to celebrate two new shows: Damon Bolte Speakeasy, which is now the definitive cocktail show Fantastic. in America. And Damon then also, is an encyclopedia of knowledge about the cocktail and its history. Brandon Hoy. And Greg do a hilarious show called The Sports Dude. It does have explicit content, but it is nonetheless one of the funniest sports shows in the world. Think Pirates. 
Think pirate. So, well, <laughs> we're going to uh, come back. Uh, oh, we also have a very interesting interview with uh, Mark Newman, Remy Alfonso, Michael Hudman, Greg Esmond, which was uh, all south park. all the time. Wasting my time in the park because I've got nowhere to go. Hand me a job till the market fell out. Tried hard to borrow, but there was no help. Now I've got. I need a job for these two hands I'm a working man With nowhere to go One last look at the land Auctioneer with his gavel in hand And he said It's got to go Worked this piece all my life Broke my heart then took my wife Now I've got Show. I need a job for these two hands I'm a working man with nowhere to go This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Um, we are your hosts, Katie Kiefer and... Patrick Martins. Thank you. Broadcasting out of Roberta's Restaurant, 261 Moore Street. Well done and sponsored by Hearst Ranch today. Um, and on the phone we have... Taylor. Who's our true sponsor. He's the Heritage Foods sponsor, which helps support Heritage Radio Network because he buys over a ton of purebred wow. sustainable meats every week. Over a ton every week? Yes, and um, that's not a metaphor or an exact right. hyperbole. That is literally 2,000 plus pounds every week. Jumping Christmas, Jiminy. New Year's, Easter, hot heat of summer, year-round. Taylor, are you there? Hello. Hey, welcome <laughs> to the main course. Are you are you sitting there in stunned silence as Patrick uh, yodels no, I, your praises? I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, could, maybe you could go on a little bit longer, Patrick. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Now, Taylor, is it really, it's a ton a week, 2,000 pounds a no, week. over. Over a ton a week. And what exactly are you making? Uh, we make pretty much everything from jerky um, to uh, a ton of fresh sausage, terrines, bacon, hams, ham hocks. Um, I'm sure there's something I'm forgetting. Bacon, here. bacon, definitely bacon. Um, we yeah, can't I mean, supply them enough, fellas. You know, a, a, a traditional, you know, Western European style charcuterie that, um, you know, we uh, we do a lot of specials. We do, you know, crepinets. We do different country rib roasts every week. Um, so when you yeah, say I, Western European, just because uh, we really want to get into the grammar of what you do, because it's so uh-huh. interesting. What does that mean? Well, we're pretty much a traditional charcuterie. You know, we have a store in Napa and one in San Francisco. And we try to basically be just like a community resource that, you know, if somebody wants to come in and get a sandwich, they can do that. If somebody wants to come in and buy, you know, a whole pig, they can do that too. You know, and pretty much everything in between. Um, so, you know, we sell a lot of things that go along um, with, with meats also. You know, we sell beans and olive oils and vinegars. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's like I said, it's, it's, pretty much designed to be a community resource that, um, you know, people can come in and, you know, find exactly what they're looking for. And if they don't, you know, if we don't have it, then we can get it or we can make it for them. So what is the, what are some of your, what are your top selling products and what are the ones that are easiest to make and hardest to make? Because Katie and I have some questions about short-term charcuterie, long-term charcuterie. So give us, like, by name. Yeah. Sure. Well, um, I mean, the, pretty much the lifeblood of what we do is fresh sausage. You know, it's the kind of thing you can turn around in an hour and a half, two hours. 
Um, and then we've got, you know, something like that all the way up to like a prosciutto, which takes us about a year and a half to produce. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's a long cure time. Salting and deboning and pasting with the rice flour and lard. Um, you know, and then, you know, there, then there are the larger like specialty cuts, like the middles that we buy from, uh, from y'all. We turn into porchetta. Um, you know, we do, we do larger loin roasts. Um, you know, pretty much everything in between. Sometimes we do, um, you know, whole whole uh, whole pigs like boned out and dressed up for people to either do on a spit or in a cottachino and things right. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you use the middle meat, so you're, I mean, those are the things that traditionally go into grocery stores. And so, how, you know, when you, you guys are buying the whole pigs and you're able to sell off these mm, pork chops, pork mm-hmm. shoulder, does that or does that go right into your charcuterie? Uh, most of it does go straight into charcuterie. We do sell a fair amount of it, just you know, just straight up out of the case for people who are taking home and you know want uh-huh. to either dress it up themselves or turn it into pulled pork, things like that. Right. Um, but we do, you know, we do marinated and roasted meats too. Um, I see. You know, pretty much. I mean, the the main the main point is to you know to it's buy to and use sell as much every of it as we single can. piece of the pig, which is really every what we single. wanted to talk about is the economics of that. So yeah. when you have uh, okay, so the hanging weight of a pig is how much? Patrick. Between uh, 200 and 250. Is ideal, right? Now, if we get yep. under or over, there's a quote-unquote dock yeah. for the farmer. So they're encouraged to give us pigs that hang That are consistent that in size. And Taylor, how much of that goes into, um, you know, how much of that is middle meats that you sell off as roasts or loins or whatever? And how much of that goes into ground, which you then make into charcuterie? Uh, I'd say it's probably about 40% goes into ground that turns gets turned into charcuterie. And then there's head, you know, that gets turned into either uh-huh. stock or head cheese. Uh, we take the jowls off to turn into guanciale. Right. Um, but I'd say, you know, most of it we turn, you know, we just, we, we cut and sell, you know, just as a straight up roast, um, or we cut it into chops, <clears throat> you know, and sometimes, I mean, um, you know, we'll, we'll do like a value added kind of thing by either, like I said, like marinating it or, you know, or, or smoking or it. Or smoking people. it. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask yeah. you about that. Cause I love smoked pork chops. And of oh, course, yeah, if you want to make choucroute or something, you've got to have Yeah. That. That's the kind of thing that, I mean, when we have an excess of chops, um, you know, which we pretty much always do, we actually generate a fair amount just to do this. We, we soak them in a hard cider brine and then we mm-hmm. cold smoke them and Ooh. then uh, we vacuum seal them and sell them like that. You what know, does that mean, cold smoking? I don't know that term. Well, it's smoking without any heat. So essentially you're still selling a fresh pork chop that oh. hasn't been cooked at all, but it's been infused with smoke and it's been brined first. So it's got like this kind of, you know, really good like apple cidery mm-hmm. um, kind of flavor to it, but it's not smoked so long that it turns into ham because, it, oh. you know, in my opinion, it still tastes like a pork chop. Um, you know, so it's like it, it's kind of a lighter treatment than you would give something like a ham hock, which you know you smoke for hours, yeah, and, hours right. and hours. We just give it like a little, you know, like a thirty-minute cold smoke, you know, with no heat on it. So it's just absorbing a little bit of smoke for perfume, and then uh, right, you know, and then we and let then you're it still going to pan fry it and mm-hmm. or whatever, or braise it, however you do your pork chops. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like it would be great for a choucroute kind of thing, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We actually, um, you know, we teach classes on how to make salumi and different, you know. Um, how to cut up a whole pig, how to make sausage, you know, a ton of different things. And we always make uh, a lunch for the class at the end of the day. Nice. About 13 people. We made choucroute yesterday in which uh, we put, uh, it was like house-made sauerkraut, smoked pork chops, ham hocks, slab bacon, beer sausages. Um, <sighs> it was, I mean, it was it was a glorious thing. I My want some right together. now. Now, take <laughs> us through the, yeah. uh, take us, Taylor, because um, <clears throat> when I was in California last week, mm-hmm. last Comma last week. Yes, I uh, two last in a row. You got to pause. 
Um, I was amazed by the pâtés. I had a flight of pâtés, which I tasted actually at Cane Five Vineyards for a private tasting of their wines. And oh my God, it was an unbelievable combination. But that flight of pâtés... Tell us about the process of making a pate, because it is such an everyday thing. You spread a little bit on a cracker, on toast, on sweet Yeah, when I worked at Broadway Butcher, we had these really great pates we sold every day. So what like makes it a pate? Because there's a certain consistency there. It's almost like a spreadable thing. Yeah, well, I thing. mean, it's, um, you know, it's kind of like an interchangeable term. I mean, there's, there's pat, there are pates, and there are terrines, and there are mousses, and then there are riettes that are you know part of the pate family. I'd like to talk about riettes after this. Sure, happily. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah, the ones you're talking about, Patrick, the really smooth, spreadable one. That um, that was some riette that we packed up for you. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you got some rabbit riette and some pork riette. Yeah, one um, was called the rustique, and it had a little piece of bacon around it. Oh right? yeah, that was that was one of our terrines. That's a um, that's a terrine we make from pork and pork liver. It's seasoned with a little Aleppo pepper and uh, garnished with Sicilian capers. Not the most traditional thing in the world, but I, I love capers and I love a little bit of heat. Um, and, you know, we wrap it in bacon, too, which is pretty much, you know, that's still the deal. Um, people see pretty much anything wrapped in bacon and they freak out. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially when it's yeah. good bacon. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, um, you know, we, I think uh, at any given time we have about anywhere from 10 to 13 different pâtés, um, you know, more during the holidays. And, um, you know, the reason we're able to keep so many different ones, we make really small batches and we sell them out and then, you know, no, pate uh, we is something, some different ones in. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to sorry, cut you off. Um, but I was going to say pate is one of the parts of, I guess, the charcuterie portfolio that everyone can make at home. They're oh, really, absolutely. they're not hard to make at all, right? Mm-mm. No. I mean, I mean I've made a few like a basic time. liver pate where you mm-hmm. basically just, you know, cooking off duck or chicken livers or mix them and puree them with butter. Some cream. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, if you want to strain it, you can. I mean, it can be as basic as you want it to be, or it can get really, really complex also. Yeah. Um, making mousseline and, you know, different force meats, things like that. Is that an Italian thing, Mussolini? It's Mussolini, <laughs> no, like the Americanized think, version of French, but um, oh. that would be, uh, yeah, it, you know, in, in, in Italian, it's, uh, it's a pasta, you know, uh-huh. the, the mix for... Um, you know, the mix for sausage and things like that. Uh-huh. So before I ask about equipment, ask about your Riette because um, I want yeah, to Yeah, because I think Riette is another one of those um, sort of added value products that people don't think about when they buy a big piece of pork. But you can, Riettes are really pretty easy to make as well, right? All you need is a pot and a bowl, you know. Yeah. You can make it with, you know, you can make it with vegetable oil. It's best to make it with either lard or duck fat. We uh-huh. use a mix. Um, you know, and something that like... It's supposed to be heavily spiced and seasoned, and, you know, it holds forever. And yes. it's the kind of thing that's, you know, designed to get the most amount of flavor out of a small amount of meat. Um, Taylor, can you just, like, deconstruct for people, like, the difference between a pate or terrine and riette? Because riette is a different product, and I think it's it's not familiar at all, I think, to an American audience, or at least not very. Definitely, yeah. And, um, um, you know, pates and terrines, I mean, at least the way that, you know, they're usually made is it's... Um, it's essentially the same thing as a meatloaf. I mean, we make a, right. a meatloaf that we, you know, sell on a sandwich at both stores that we kind of jokingly call, like, you know, it's, it's American pate or the American working glass. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's ground meat that's bound with uh, a mixture of either eggs or cream or breadcrumbs. Um, or all three. Stock. We use cream <laughs> breadcrumbs in stock for most of our binders. Uh, but it's seasoned meat that's then either ground or minced by hand. Sometimes there's a garnish in there, like we'll put, uh, you know, really good local mushrooms and season in there. 
uh, papers like I was talking about for the rustique. Um, sometimes olives. You know, they're all sure, kinds of Sure, and people have garnishes. seen it with a whole egg that goes all the way through. It's like a I dog pile. Like, uh-huh. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's a yeah. dog pile um, of leftovers in a good way. Yeah. It, well, it, ground it, meat it's is... A way, you know, charcuterie basically is, you know, the way to use up every scrap of the animal. Right. I mean, and there's a reason that it's, it's almost always, you know, uh, pork-centric. You know, it, pork lends itself really well to charcuterie. Not um, beef? Uh, beef absolutely plays a part in it, but I mean, I'd say probably nine times out of ten, you know, most of the charcuterie you're going to see, especially in traditional places, it's going to be uh, it's going to be pork based. Why is that? You know, is I mean, it the consistency of a pig meat or what? Yeah, that's, uh, well, the I, that fat was one of the questions definitely lends itself better to um, to you know to pureeing and to grinding into things like that. Um, you know, you definitely got all beef, all beef sausages, mm-hmm. all lamb sausages, things like that. But um, pork naturally has, you know, the right kind of fat, you know, that kind of creamy, really soft deliciousness that, um, you know, I'm not saying doesn't exist with beef and lamb, but, uh, you know, and even a lot of the beef and lamb products we make, we add pork fat to just Uh because it it, it enhances the mouthfeel, just makes it, um, you know, just just makes it all the more uh, satisfying, I guess. Now, talk about, let's make a transition because we have another uh, nine minutes left. Uh Uh-oh, did this uh, cut out? No, you're good, you're good. You there, Patrick? Um, yeah, Don't mess with your thing. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, Actually, no, you're not there. I, I, I think you went to the other side Patrick, of the Patrick, yeah, you, you just lost your connection, sweetheart. I'm going to, yeah, we're going to talk about <laughs> equipment for a second now because we were curious about that. And then the next thing I want to ask before we wind up with you, Taylor, is um, is your training and what your basic traditions are. But let's talk first about the equipment you need to use. Is it like, I mean, some things you put through a grinder and then you were talking mm-hmm. about mincing things by hand. Um, tell us about what, you know, what special tricks you get to, or what special toys you get to play with in order to do what you do. Well, most of the stuff we, we use are just basically larger versions of what you'd use at home. I mean, instead of a, a regular food processor, with the, you know, you would use to make uh, you know a pate or something like that. We uh-huh. have a, a larger buffalo chopper. You know, we can Ooh, process you chopper. know thirty or forty pounds of mortadella. Uh, yeah, next <laughs> butcher <laughs> orgasm. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, we actually, you know, we um, you know, despite the fact that you know it sounds like you know, I mean, we 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 literally do move through a ton of pork a week. We do it using pretty basic equipment. We have a grinder. We have that buffalo chopper. We have yep. a couple of uh, hand crank uh, sausage stuffers that we use to case, you know, everything. Um, we don't have the big hoppers and, the, you know, the, uh, the meters where you can, um, you know, select the size of the link and all that. I mean, we have, you know, our, our operation is pretty much based on manpower, not necessarily machine power. That's nice um, to hear, yeah. Yeah, but we do, um, you know, we have a couple of smokers, um, which we named uh, Mary-Kate and Ashley. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could tell you why. but uh, I love that. I think we can all guess. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we have, you know, it's, it's pretty much, we have less a commercial factory than, like, you know, than, than a standard restaurant kitchen. We have three work islands, uh-huh. um, a full, you know, 12-burner range, a couple ovens, a convection oven, a dehydrator for drying jerky, and then a couple of smokers. Right. And then we have the stuffers, the grinder, and uh, the buffalo chopper, and that's that's pretty much it. Um, what do you use for casings? We use pretty much all all natural casings. And those we are use, lamb or pork? Well, both. Um, uh-huh. We use two different varieties of lamb casings. We use pork casings for most of our fresh sausages, and then we use call fat also, which we get from Heritage, which is the mm. most pristine. 
seen uh, prettiest stuff I've ever worked with. Is it's, that uh, call fat? Is that oh, that's not the one that shreds out like that that you stretch out and it looks like netting. It looks exactly like um, yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah, we use it to wrap yeah. crepinets. We use it to line terrines. I mean, it's the kind of uh-huh. thing where. Um, you know, it, it's a uh, it's a really good netting. It keeps things. Uh, it it lo- allows them to hold their shape, and also it it, it self bases the cooking. I mean, I, I've seen um, I've seen people use it to wrap you know whole lamb loins, fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say one we- thing about Barbalude since uh, we're going to come with Orléans later. Um, they buy <laughs> something called feuille de gras. Feuille de gras. That's fat leaf. Yeah, it's just that little thick. Trying to be as thick as possible well, that's layer that's flaked, put on top of That's flaked charcuterie. lard, right? No, Taylor? it's actually foie de gras well, back fat. Oh. Foie de gras? Are you sure that's not leaf lard? Yeah, leaf no, lard. No, that's no, what it's I was not trying leaf to. lard. Foie de gras, qu'est-ce que c'est, Orléans? Is that the mall? Oh, yeah, that's, um, that's like a thin, a thin sheet of back fat that sometimes put over things just to help them brown. Exactly. Or, okay, I get you, yeah. So um, kind of wrapping. Yeah, a it, lot it, of it, um, it, of pâtés are wrapped in that in that thin slice of fat, and then they get it's into like a, a layer. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right. We use that for a and it's attractive compliant. too. We use call fat for others and bacon for others. Does the call um, fat kind of dissolve in the cooking? It will. Um, you know, if it's applied to direct heat, if it's like you know, if it's like sitting on a grill or uh, you know, a cast iron pan or something like that, it will pretty much dissolve. Uh-huh. Um, if it's used in a more gentle treatment, like it is with the terrines, you know, that right. are baked in a water in a bath, water bath yeah. then it'll stay. You know, it, it'll stay pretty much whole. But once you you know, you turn that terrine out, once it chills down. You know, You'll you see that again. Really like, yeah. So yeah. Uh, we have uh, five five more minutes, and uh, I mean, it's just because there's so much to ask Taylor, and Taylor is kind of semi agreed, although I'm kind of roping him into it by saying this in front of our millions of listeners, which includes <laughs> France. Yeah. Um, you know, hopefully he's going to do a little bit of a monthly segment, you know, uh, or every month, month and a half, you know, where we kind of get our finger on the pulse. So, uh, you know, Patty, once, you know, I'll do anything you need me to. Thank you. So much. I know Patrick does command do that kind of loyalty, doesn't he? So um, let me ask he, you. About, he really does. He he's, does, uh, and, and, you know, and he does it in a way that's not off-putting either. He's, yeah, he's a very sweet man. Thank he you, Taylor. Of course, mm-hmm. didn't talk to me from like August '09 to March '010. Uh, no, just kidding. I can be a pain <laughs> in the butt, but uh, let me ask you. you, Northern California, talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the basically the state of charcuterie in the U.S. Um, is one question I have. And the other question, maybe let's start here, because then we'll go into Anya Fernald's uh, world of, of talking about the culture of Northern California. Mm-hmm. Also, regulations. Yeah. I mean, people can't even, uh, you know, my buddy Cruz at Lupa had to stick all of his charcuterie in bleach, which basically is equivalent of throwing it out so that no oh one could God. even eat it. Tell us a little bit about the regulations, HACCP plans, this and that, that you have to put up week, at, week at, put up with week in and week out. So you want me to summarize the state of charcuterie in Northern California and all the regulations and the United States through in three minutes? No, yeah. well, little headlines. <laughs> I mean, are you supported by the government? I mean, do they understand that what you're doing is very interesting and that they need to help you and figure? Uh, no. Well, no. not only interesting, part, but know, also uh, an most, essential way most of using bureaucratic organizations like the state and the county health departments, for the most part. What they don't understand, they fear, and there's this cover-your-butt mentality that basically says, like, you know, if they're not sure, then they're going to tell you to shut it down. So mm-hmm. we go through, I mean, to do what we do, we produce mountains of paperwork and testing, and, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, no, I mean, it's, it's really not as well-supported. I mean, you know, we... We we, we, we we put our HACCP plans together just like any other processor, and, you know, um, you know we, we prove that the food that we're making is safe. You know, we do a lot of testing. I mean, we're right. 
take refrigerator temperatures and, you know, we produce logs and, and all that fun stuff. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, it's important to have, you know, a paper trail of, of safety, but, um, you know, for the most part, especially, you know, the, the, smaller the, the smaller the agency, you know, the less resources they have, um, you know, the more skepticism they look on an operation like ours, you know. Now, let um, me ask about but, uh, the farmer's market world that you live mm-hmm. in. I mean, uh, where, where can people find fatted calf food, by the way, I guess is the first question. I well, mean, you know, in we many do the places. Plaza Farmer's Market every Saturday, and we have the two stores that are open seven days a week, um, 362 days a year. Um, and do you also have a website, Taylor? We do. It's fattedcalf.com. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, you're at other markets, too. You're at other markets as well, Berkeley. No, that's the only farmer's market we're at at the time being. Um, okay. We were doing the Berkeley farmer's market, but, you know, we're we're a very small company, and basically we had too many balls up in the air, and I would really rather focus on, you know, doing things, doing a smaller amount of things really well than, you know, just expanding and expanding just for the sake of getting bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I was gonna, I was actually going to back you up for a second and talk about the HACCP thing because I know that that for small producers, a lot of those HACCP regulations are a real burden. But at the same time, um, you know, I think consumers and I and of course, you know, as a as a conscientious producer, you certainly want to know yourself that what you're doing is the right, you know, is doing it the right way and mm-hmm. doing it in a way that's not going to cause any problems for you down the road or for anybody else. Absolutely. So. Um, one of the things that I was, I'm always curious about is I know that there's sort of like in, <clears throat> in the FDA and the USDA, they're, they're sort of contemplating, because there are so many small producers now, they're sort of creating almost two tiers of regulation. And, and would that be something that you support, or do you think everybody should have to abide by the same? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because we definitely fit into the smaller um, mm-hmm. category. You know, we... Um, in spite of moving I, I a think, ton of pig a week. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, there are, you know, <laughs> I, there are, you know, different... There are different processes and, and um, you know, and, and different, different things that pertain to you depending on the size of, you know, your facility. And someplace like us, I mean, you know, a ton a week sounds like a lot, but, I mean, you consider, you know, some of these larger plants, like, that's what they go through like Hormel? in an hour. Well, yeah, <laughs> the Hormel, IBP, you know, I mean, most, you know, most uh, USDA-certified places are, you know, five, six times larger than we are, at least. Yeah, at least. You know, um, and we do a lot of things that we don't, you know, we could, you know, make much larger batches of things and make them less frequently, you know, and, and it would be fine. You know, we could, you know, load some preservatives in there. And, uh, but it wouldn't you know, taste as good. But, it, well, and that's, that's exactly the point, you know, and that's, that's really, you know, the antithesis of what we're trying mm-hmm. to do just as a company, and I think that's also what we've developed our reputation on. Yes. So I think, I think that having a two-tier system, you know, not necessarily making it, you know, making smaller producers less responsible is the thing to do, but I think that, you know, there's kind of this whole, you know, swath of regulations that they put on to people, whether they're producing certain things or not, that, um, you know, if, if I'm not, you know, if I'm not, uh, you know, processing poultry in my place or like you know doing gutting and feathering and things like that like i shouldn't have to have hassle plans for that that you, know, you do at the house <laughs> in the i garage. got a lot of room up here you which has been a beautiful house i yeah, mean god uh, willing every american can see what the life of a of a napa valley or charcutier is. I mean, it's very no just in general well, that I, uh, you know i i rent it and uh i'm definitely very lucky but uh 
the sad fact of the matter is I'm just not able to spend quite that much time here. Um, it's been really nice been, since we opened the uh, San Francisco store, though, being able to uh, get down there and kind of get out of my country mouse lifestyle. Get to the again. big city of San Francisco. That's city. right. I well, I mean, I know for you it's like, you know, it's a little backwater bird, but... Hardly. One horse town. Patrick came back yodeling the praises of San Francisco last week. I definitely can't wait to come see my city cousin in May. I know. Well, Taylor is out of... I mean... If you see Taylor walking around and just hanging out, doing his thing, he does look out of place. This is an East Coast guy who just happened to find solace and peace and happiness in San Francisco, but everything about him is East Coast. Yeah. Like well, so Bushwick, I, I East Coast. Really? Compliment. So he dresses all in black? He dresses all in black sometimes, and like you know, he's got a little bit yeah. of scrub. Oh, anyway, perfect. Yeah. Well, Taylor, um, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, this is uh, our a lot listeners of fun. will be hearing a lot more about Taylor Boddicker and Fatted Calf in, in future shows. And uh, definitely, if you're in San Francisco, make it a point to stop by Fatted Calf or Napa. Thanks so much. Good talking with you both. Likewise. Nice okay, to meet bye-bye. you, Taylor. Bye-bye. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, We're talking all things charcuterie today. Um, And so uh, we just finished up with Taylor Bodeker from the... um, Bodeker. Bodeker, excuse me. I still don't really know how to spell his name. It's B-O-E-T. Actually, you know, it's funny. I I shouldn't... I'm a bad speller, and yet somehow I I always spelled his name correctly. Well, you know, it's one of those names that sticks in your visual memory. But anyway, so we spoke with Taylor from the Fat Calf about what he's doing. And now we're bringing on someone absolutely fantastic. And I love... Not only is she so smart, but she is truly able to give us a state of American charcuterie and European 
because she is an expert on both. She's lived in Europe. She knows. She's very well-spoken. And she has the most awesome house. I hope... I'm going to give the address. No, just kidding. I won't. <laughs> but every... I, I really wish everyone could see what it means to, to live in a, in a growing neighborhood. Because no one was there on the streets when I first went there. And now you see the first blue bottle opening. You see a few businesses. You see a little farmer's market. And they were truly a nice. pioneer that started that. Beautiful, beautiful house. Anyway, Anya, are you there? No, they're not. What happened? Oh, <laughs> I guess we're going right to our in-house guest. I oh, don't know. Jack someone is... was calling. All right. Well, anyway, well, they have an amazing house, and they are going to be on the, the, the next segment. But yes. right now we're going to go to... We have Orléans. Orléans. Which Orléans from Barbelou. Good morning. And uh, Orléans is, is a master charcutier. And um, we were going to conduct this part of the um, the uh, program in French. On va essayer. So um, hang in with us, because I mean, you're well, probably we surprised. Do you speak English? A little bit. Uh, a little uh, bit. It's difficult. Uh. No, c'est pas trop difficile. Ah, si un peu. Okay. Where, where, alors, where were you? Où étiez-vous um, avant Barbalou? I come from Bordeaux. I've worked uh, five years in uh, Paris. To make the charcuterie, uh, catering. Avec qui? With whom? Uh, Monsieur Béranger. Monsieur Béranger. Yeah, it's a uh, meilleur de France. It's the most uh, charcuterie. Uh, oh, it's the most, the most high-level charcuterie yeah. in France. Yeah. So you ah did bon? not work with Gilles Vero. Si, 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 a little bit, uh, three months uh, before I come in here. Ah, very interesting. And uh, what is the difference? Uh, mais peut-être nous parlons en français. We're going to stick, we're going bah, to go peut, to French. On peut faire les traductions, parfois. Oui, pour... parfois, si okay. c'est important. Moi, je veux bien. Cette, uh, this uh, segment is for our French listeners to, to, to put an olive branch out to our French compatriots <laughs> who believe in revolution. So, That's um, right. Oh, mon Dieu. And it'll be a 20-minute segment, and then we'll come back uh, to English. Mais je voulais... Quelle est la différence de la charcuterie française et italienne so et what's Germanique the difference between et, uh, Western European traditional en fait, styles? American. En fait, chaque pays a ses, ses traditions de charcuterie et uh, donc nous on a la charcuterie française. L'Allemagne, ils ont leurs saucisses spécialité allemande et l'italienne, leur jambon sec, le serrano, tous ces bons jambons. Et donc nous en France, on est vraiment char charcutier, on est formé pour ça. Il y a des générations en générations euh, qui continuent à travailler dans ce métier-là. Et qui, qui, qui prend les traditions et qui les, qui les garde très forcément. Oui, oui, oui. Ouais. c'est vraiment... Euh... Ça ne change pas de centaines après centaines. Non, 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 c'est toujours ouais. la même chose. Ouais. On essaie toujours d'améliorer les produits, mais ça reste toujours les mêmes bases. Et est-ce que les charcutiers en France, est-ce qu'ils ajoutent euh, des chimiques comme ici pour euh, les garder bien euh, pendant des mois, etc. Non, 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 non. non. Nous, ça fait vraiment, naturel. Oui, voilà. On a vraiment une DSC, euh, on respecte vraiment la DSC de 15 jours, euh, même quand c'est sous vide, c'est moins. Et on respecte vraiment ça, il n'y a pas de produits chimiques, c'est vraiment naturel. Il y avait toujours les, les, les euh, procès de sous vide oui. pour faire la charcuterie pendant les 20 ans ou 100 ans ou... Oui. Oui. Ah, oui. ah bon. So sous vide is a traditional uh, method of curing sausages and whatnot for over 100 years or several hundred years. Hmm. Yeah. Et ici à New York, euh, on. Il y a les lois que, qui sont oui. contre le sous vide, non? Oui, oui. Il faut avoir des euh, des, autorisa des autorisations euh, de, de New York. Euh, C'est vraiment strict ici. 
Mais pourquoi Y a-t-il vraiment quelque chose de dangereux dans le procès de faire le, le suivi Tant que c'est respecté, tant que, euh, tant que les dates sont bien respectées, la DSC, il euh, n'y a aucun souci. Il faut, faut que ce soit bien fait. Oui, ouais. oui alors c'est possible. Non, mais c'est que... dangereux parce que le bactéria peut former, parce que vous avez un environnement qui est oui. chauffé, mais pas trop. Et voilà. il y a des protéines euh, qui, qui les bactéries peuvent manger. Euh. Mais moi, alors c'est un... bien, c'est bien, euh, bien dangereux si vous ne savez dangereux. pas ce que vous faites. Oui. J'ai une demande. Hein. Le... Le tu as une question. Meat. How do you say meat? <rire> la viande. La, la viande. C'est possible de voir et de sentir le parfume et voir si c'est mauvais et si ça peut rendre toi malade ou c est, c est, y a-t-il des euh, mal, maladies euh, euh, hidden? Bien caché. Caché. C'est bien sûr. Bien sûr, bien sûr. Bien sûr. Oh, oui, on te sent, on le, on le ressent tout de suite quand une viande n'est pas très bien. Euh, à la couleur, déjà, à la texture, quand on le toucher, à l'odeur. Oui. Euh... Mais c'est possible de dire, c'est bon, c'est parfait, mais quand même, il y a une chose cachée. Ah oui, ça, on n'est jamais à 100% sûr. Hein. Même bon, si ça. ça voilà. Oui. Mais euh, on est quand même euh, à 100% à surveiller euh, les matières premières. Euh, pour pas avoir ces problèmes-là. Il faut les tester, non Il faut, faut prendre les samples. Oui, 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 on, on teste tout. Hein. On oui. vérifie, on oui. contrôle vraiment la marchandise oui. de A à Bien Z. Bien sûr. Um, ce, ce qui est intéressant pour moi, c'est que um, dans les traditions de charcuterie, de charcuterie c'est que vous avez les mêmes, les mêmes euh, procès que dans les, euh, les, dans les jours antiquaires. Et euh, ce que vous... Il y avait toujours les mêmes, les mêmes maladies, les mêmes, les mêmes bactéries qui sont cachées pendant des années, pendant des centaines des années. Mais, mais vous avez des, des, des procès comme de sécher, oui. de cuire à la fume, à ouais, la, le, le fumage, le fumage bien dans le sous-vide. Mais, mais c'est plutôt les, les choses, les procès qui sont de, de sécher et de la fumage qui vous protègent. Oui. un peu des possibilités de développement de, des bactéries de, de, euh, ouais, parce que ça tue les, les maladies oui c'est ça oui. et c'est comme ça ce qu'ils sont développés c'est pour, pour autrement il y aurait des un espèce de plague oui. <rire> ah ouais. parce qu'il y avait tellement de viande qui sont traitées dans cette manière oui. alors parce que il faut les avant de les frigos avant de réfrigération il, il fallait il fallait faire la charcuterie oui. pour avoir pour suffisamment à manger pendant les, les hivers. Je voulais savoir, vous avez dit euh, avant le, les ingrédients. Quelle est la différence de l'ingrédient en Amérique et en France Parce que normalement, parce que moi je vends à, à Barbalou, alors je dis, ce sont les meilleurs en Amérique. Mais dans l'arrière de ma tête, je pense, mais peut-être en France, <rire> c'est très mieux. Oh, il y a les génétiques euh, beaucoup mieux. Oh oui, moi aussi, je voulais savoir si, si les, par exemple, si les cochons sont des, les, les mêmes spécies. Oh, les mêmes qualités. Oh, les mêmes qualités. Avec le gras et tout euh... ça. Vous faites à France, en France, qui est différent d'ici pour, euh, pour les euh, raise, pour les, oui. les, les enlever. Pour les enlever, oui. Parce qu'en fait, euh, ici, les, les cochons sont vachement plus gras. Ah oui? oui. Pigs are much fatter here. France, huh. Et euh, donc, euh, bon, on, a chance, on a la chance de travailler avec Héritage. 
Donc c'est quand même la bonne viande et euh, on arrive à avoir de la viande pas trop grasse. Et c'est une bonne chose parce que quand il y a beaucoup de gras, donc ça veut dire que les produits sont plus gras et les gens ils n'aiment pas ça. Ouais. Mais, mais, les, les, mais, les... mais je pensais que c'était un, un signe, signe de qualité le gras. Oui, oui mais en, fait, sûr. En, en France, oui, c'est trop. Les... Il y a euh... trop de gras. Oui. Mais ça marche pas pour le lardeau ou... Non, 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 non. C'est pas bon. C'est la bon. qualité de la gras, du, oui. du gras, ce que vous, de, ce qu que utilise, vous parlez. Ouais. ouais, parce que euh, on dit que les, les cochons de commodity, c'est-à-dire du, du gros marché, ouais. gros marché, ils sont euh, élevés pour avoir moins de gras. Et ce qu'il soit bien mince, enfin, il y a beaucoup de viande, mais pas beaucoup de gras, qui soit euh, mélangé avec. Oui. Euh, et, mais c'est clair que vous achetez les, les héritages parce que le gras c'est du plus du, bien ouais, qualité, du bon gras, de bonne qualité. Et même qu'il y en a plus qu'il y a en France, c'est toujours quelque chose. C'est pour ça que vous vous, oui, les, voilà. vous les mélangez pas. Non voilà. Dire, non, non, avec non. les commodités. Non non non. Mais en France, qu'est-ce qui, c'est de quelle quelle sorte de cochon c'est c'est le plus euh, euh, utilisé utilisé pour chocolat en France le rat de cochon le race à la race oui oh, Vous, euh... y a-t-il une différence non 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 c'est à peu près pareil après c'est juste euh, la différence de gras euh, la quantité de gras qu'il y a sur le cochon euh, mm -hmm. c'est juste ça qui change mais c'est où que vous achetez les cochons ah, en France, en France euh, vous allez dans le marché chaque jour, comment ça en fait, marche euh, En France, c'est à Rungis, donc c'est un grand marché, l'un des plus grands marchés au mondial euh, de oui. tout ce qui est alimentaire, euh, fleurs, ils font vraiment oui. tout. Ouais. Et euh, donc euh, souvent, il y a les, euh, les patrons des charcuteries okay. qui vont une fois par semaine chercher leur viande directement euh, chez le fournisseur euh, sur Rungis. Le taille ou yeah. le cochon entier Non, 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 plus le cochon entier. Ça, c'est vraiment vieux, ça. C'est vieux. Maintenant, c'est vraiment détaillé <rire> comme ici. Euh, Mais ouais. il faut ordonner en avance, comme vous faites avec nous, ou y a-t-il une un quantité non. En France, on peut suffit. prendre euh, tous les jours, si on veut, de la viande. Euh, ici, en, ici, aux états unis on est obligé de commander euh, quand même... Euh, en, une, une, une semaine en avance. Voilà. Oui. Et en France, euh, s'il nous faut de la viande pour le lendemain, bah, c'est possible. Ah oui, ouais. c'est possible. Parce que vous avez beaucoup de beaucoup plus de traditions ouais, de voilà. charcuterie et, ouais, ouais. et les gens mangent beaucoup plus de charcuterie qu'ici. Voilà. Mais alors vous dites que les il y a un niveau de qualité dans les ingrédients ici ouais. en Amérique, pareil ou presque pareil en France. C'est vous vous dites. Oui. Vous êtes d'accord oh Oui. Mais c'est intéressant parce que je pensais toujours que... Euh, et je voulais savoir aussi dans la culture de France, y a-t-il une compétition avec les Italiens et les Français pour qui fait la charcuterie le mieux et Y a-t-il des compétitions et et, Oui, il oui, y, y a beaucoup de compétitions. Il y a The uh, European Catering Cup. It's a big competition. Et uh, c'est vraiment important... Uh, nous, là-bas, en France, on a beaucoup de compétitions. Meilleur jeune chef de France, meilleur charcutier, meilleur saucisson. Et euh, c'est des concours internationaux. Donc, il y a l'Allemagne, l'Italie, euh, tous les pays qui entourent euh, la France. Oui, euh, bien sûr. Et qui, est-ce qu'il y a toujours le français que, que gagne ah, bah, Là, on est euh, meilleur jambon, euh, Gilles Véraud, qui travaille avec nous euh, pour Daniel Boulu à Barboulu. Oui. 
qui a, on a le meilleur jambon blanc de Paris, de France. Ah oui. Donc, euh... c'est très intéressant. Le, le, le jambon blanc, c'est, c'est qu'est-ce que c'est C'est un jambon entier. Voilà, on ressort en entier et donc après on le, on le prépare, on le désosse, on le part et après on, le, on l'assaisonne. Oui. Avec tous ces produits, euh, tous les assaisonnements, on les reçoit de France directement. Ah oui. Pour vraiment avoir la qualité. Euh, mmh. Comme naturel. par exemple quoi Les, les espèces quoi. Voilà, les, les sels, euh, les boyaux. On a tout ça qui vient directement de France euh, une fois euh, de temps en temps euh, qu'on fasse une grosse commande. Uh-huh. Ouais, pour vraiment avoir du naturel, euh, pas de chimique. Et c'est combien de temps C'est pas beaucoup pour faire le jambon comme ça Alors un jambon, on le fait euh, on le, donc une journée pour le préparer, donc le désosser. Euh, après, on l'assaisonne dans la même journée. Et euh, le lendemain, on le forme et on le cuit, donc ça coûte, euh, on va dire, trois jours, trois jours de fabrication pour un jambon blanc. Et vous avez un jambon euh, C'est tout, hein. de, de goût euh, euh, fantastique, après trois jours seulement. De, ouais. Les ça, gens pensent de la charcuterie, ils pensent, oh, une année, deux années, de... ouais, bien sûr. Mais, mais aussi en trois jours. Mais ça, c'est un... dans le style de prosciutto, de serrano, que ça non, fait... ça fait... c'est un jambon, jambon. Voilà, ça, c'est jambon blanc. Après, les serrano, tout ça, ça dure beaucoup plus longtemps, parce que le oui, temps, c'est ça. Une année, deux un années. An, deux ans, ça, ouais. c'est ouais. trois jours. Moi, ouais, c'est que c'est trois ça, jours. C'est ça, ce que ouais. je comprends, oui. Mais... Um, mais je voulais demander um, de parler un petit peu sur le sujet de votre euh, éducation dans la charcuterie parce oui. que en France il y a toujours les programmes de maîtres de charcuterie euh, comme les pâtissiers oui. etc et ça n'existe pas vraiment ici à, euh, aux États-Unis même ce que vous, vous, vous pourrez prendre un cours à l'école mais c'est pas comme ce que vous, vous avez fait oui. euh, quand vous avez votre oui, en France, on a, vraiment, on a vraiment des écoles pour... Donc, on a les écoles cuisine, charcuterie, euh, catering. Ouais. Et, euh, et donc, vous avez euh, pris un Quand un il an. était né, euh, pour faire le crier, cry, il était <rire> battu avec pleurer. un saucisson. <rire> euh, il s'est battu euh, avec un saucisson. Oui, oui. Non, mais... Non, mais c'est charmant, ça. <rire> non, mais vraiment, je dis que vous êtes jeune hein, en France. Euh, oui, vous avez commencé vous... à quel âge Parce à que vous ans. êtes très... Que c'est à 16 ans. Ouais. Ouais. Alors, c'était une espèce d'apprentissage voilà. au début. Vous êtes, vous êtes allé à l'école pendant deux ou trois jours. Ouais. Et puis, euh, pendant, non euh, deux Vous ans. avez fini tout à, tout à fait avec l'école. Et vous avez pris votre... Vous êtes entré dans le, dans le charcuterie. Voilà, en fait, en France, c'est, on fait une alternance. Euh, vous travaillez deux semaines et vous avez deux semaines à l'école oui. pour vraiment suivre les cours de techno, technologie mm-hmm. et euh, souvent c'est sur deux ans que vous faites un diplôme donc euh, bah vous avez la cuisine, moi j'ai commencé par la cuisine après j'ai fait traiteur, catering ah bon and uh, after uh, the charcuterie oui. ouais, et donc euh, en fait c'est toujours sur deux ans, un an et donc j'ai fait euh, trois, quatre ans d'études wow. pour quatre euh, ans d'études Yeah, but that's with ça. that's with catering, with um, just basic cooking and being a chef, and then a speciality de charcuterie. Yeah. C'est incroyable ça. On prend pas aussi sérieusement l'éducation ici. I mean, même que vous pouvez prendre un, un diplôme à CIA ou bien une autre école de cuisine. Mais pas seulement mais pour la charcuterie. Non, pas du tout. Et vous prenez, vous prenez pas un une année de, de charcuterie, vous prenez un six semaines ou deux ouais. mois ou quoi. Bah, est-ce que vous trouvez que les chefs ici... Euh, oui, moi, je pense que c'est, c'est à sourd qu'un chef qui fait chose euh, frais, 
Euh, il prend un bistec, un poulet, il le vend oui. pour 18 dollars. Il pense qu'il peut, qu'il est espère sur la charcuterie. Moi, j'ai pensé toujours qu'ils sont deux métiers complètement divers, même s'ils utilisent les mêmes ingrédients. Euh, vous ah, trouvez oui, que les chefs sont. Euh, qu'ils pensent qu'ils sont bons à la charcuterie, mais oui. quand même, il y a un art. Comment est-ce oui. que vous les trouvez euh... Il y a quand même... Euh, <rire> nous, après, on a été formés pour ça. On, on vit vraiment pour la charcuterie. C'est vraiment notre métier, notre passion. Et euh, parfois, on rencontre des gens ici euh, ou ailleurs et c'est pas du tout... Euh, ils n'ont pas le savoir euh, de oui. la charcuterie. Oui. Ils n'ont oui. pas été formés euh, pour ça. Mais qu'est-ce que c'est le secret et le... Pas le secret, mais Qu'est-ce qu'ils font qui ne sont pas justes Quel est le mystère Qui ne sont pas pareils. Oui, c'est euh, bah, rien que déjà que la quantité d'assaisonnement. Il y a un pourcentage pour chaque produit qu'on doit respecter. Ok. Qu'on met nous-mêmes au point pour que ce soit vraiment au meilleur goût. Mm -hmm. Et euh, bah, certaines personnes ne savent pas gérer ça. Mm -hmm. euh, ou ils le prennent trop jeune, ou ils voilà. le ramènent trop vieux. Okay. Ah ouais. Et euh, bah, tout est important, l'assaisonnement, la viande, tout. Vraiment tout. Oui, le, les pourcentages de grâce be, oui. contre la viande mince, mm -hmm. tout ça. Yeah. Et euh, je voulais savoir, parce qu'évidemment, euh, Barbalou euh, est un grand euh, euh, customer, un client de notre, et même maintenant aussi Anne Saxelby. Euh, ils ils font part, partnership un oui. peu. Et alors, euh, je veux savoir un peu comme est l'expérience de travailler là-bas et, et quel, euh, quel produit vous faites et que vous faisiez dans le futur. Euh, euh, raconte un peu de ce que vous faites. À Moi, à donc, euh, donc euh, au Barboulu, euh, on fait tout ce qui est terrine, grand-mère, grand-père, euh, des, euh, des produits vraiment français, des tagines, euh, buff chic, euh, rabbit, euh, jambon blanc, super jambon blanc. Euh, et après, on fait tout ce qui est saucisse, saucisse pour DBGB, qui est à downtown ouais. de Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Et donc, euh, on fabrique beaucoup, beaucoup de saucisses pour eux. Mm -hmm. Et euh, donc, tout ce qui est saucisses, les chipolata. Les saucisses frais et les saucisses qui sont séchées, non Non, pas séchées. Ah, seulement frais. Oui, seulement frais. Uh -huh. Que chipolata, merguez, thaï, beaujolaise, ouais. toutes ces saucisses qui sont très, très bonnes d'ailleurs. Mm -hmm. Et euh, oui, pour tous les restaurants du groupe, euh, Daniel Voulu. Euh. Et vous avez des problèmes avec le gouvernement ici que, que fait que le rend difficile pour. Mmh. Euh... Non, 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 vu qu'on respecte vraiment les lois, euh, on ne fait pas euh, ce qui est interdit. Mmh. On respecte, on a tous les diplômes pour le, le sous-vide, euh, donc euh, on respecte vraiment tout. Vous avez devenu changer votre système pour faire le charcuterie parce qu'il y a oui. les règles Oui, oui, c'est oui. complètement différent par rapport à la France, oui. Et ça ah fait bon mal à le produit final Non, parce qu'il faut s'adapter. Et oui. euh, si on arrive à s'adapter, euh, tout se passe euh, comme en France. Et si, si vous êtes un Américain qui va à Barbalou, oui. que, quels sont les deux ou trois produits symboliques que vous pensez que... À goûter Oui, à goûter. Donc euh, déjà le jambon blanc, jambon très blanc. très bon. Le fromage de tête, et cheese. Head ah cheese. Bon uh -huh. Et euh, après le grand-père. Ah oui. une terrine de oh, terrine ouais, de, une terrine de, oui. de porc avec Moi, du foie gras. Moi, j'aime le grand-mère parce qu'il y a le foie gras dedans. Non, c'est le grand-père. Ah, c'est le grand-père okay, okay. ouais, qui a le foie gras. Le grand-père, c'est avec le foie gras et la truffe. Oh, merde. Ouais. Ouh, ça, c'est super. So, the things to eat at Barbalou are the jambon blanc et le uh, terrine grand-père, which has foie gras and truffles. Mm 
Et le troisième, excusez-moi. Uh, head cheese. Oh, the Moi, head cheese. Head cheese, which is becoming more and more popular, qui devient de plus en plus populaire ici. Il y a des chefs qui font du très bon head cheese. Um, uh, yeah. le, le soirée vendredi, que je suis sortie avec Patrick et ses amis, euh, fermiers, etc., des chefs, nous sommes allés à Mapache. Et un de la maman Foucault, de David ouais. Chang. Il a fait un, un tête de veau. Non, yeah, head cheese. Yeah. C'est la même chose, tête de veau? Uh, head cheese... Non, c'est une Fromage de tête, non. Yeah, fromage de tête. Bah, il, a, il les a fait dans des petits, petits gâteaux qui sont enrobés avec euh, du riz qui est. Euh, après ça, c'est frites. Alors, vous avez. C'était un peu comme un scotch egg. C'est-à-dire qu'il y avait quelque chose qui l'entoure qui est très crispy. Et, crispy. Right? And then bah, non, inside, crispy, c'est pas français. Non, c'était pas du tout français. Non, mais j'ai dit crispy. Crispy. Non, comment ça dit en français bah, Je ne sais pas. Craquelu. Croquant. 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 Oui. Et, mais c'était une fantastique chose parce que c'était ce head cheese qui était enrobé dans ce crackling rice um, thing et puis fried. Et donc, vous craquez through this ah, crispy yeah. thing et puis il y avait this delicious melting head cheese inside. It was fantastique. Mais vraiment On s'est bien régalé à ma pêche. On s'est très bien régalé là. Alors, euh, j'espère que tu retournes avec euh, Daniel la prochaine fois. Oui. Nous n'avons pas, euh, pas demandé à Daniel. Il faut dire à, bon, à Georgette bonjour. Hein. D'accord. Oui, j'aime bien la, la, la petite Georgette, elle est très charmante. Ah, oui. Et aussi à Borgelet, euh, salut moi. Borgelet, c'est pas un mec well, Bonjour, you say, qui est celui-là que vous Georgette. Avez... Qui est Georgette. She does the uh, public relations for them. Ah, ok. Yeah. And I know her. She's a lovely, lovely woman. Alors, j'espère je, que tu remanes pour le prochain. Merci beaucoup pour venir. Merci uh, à vous. And um, you know, folks, this is our, our interview with uh, Orléans. To spread the word to France that to, HRN yeah, exists. Yeah, from Barboulud, a, a master charcuterie, charcutier, and uh, I hope you tag an well, Jack. great guy. Yeah, we. <laughs> I can help you out, Jack. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, thank you so, so much. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup et à la prochaine. Au revoir. Ouais. Alors, j'espère que vous
This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime and co-host, Patrick Martins. Sorry, Patrick, I could see you were drinking there. And uh, we just concluded a, a, a first in Heritage Radio Network history, which was to conduct an interview in another language with our wonderful guest, Orléans from the Barbaloon. Um, before that, we had Taylor Bodeker from uh, Fatted Calf in California. And, and now we're going to have Anya Fernald, which will bridge the two the worlds two of worlds. Europe and America. That's the state what of I'm talking about. So if you're wondering why the hell we're doing a show like this... <laughs> This That's the answer. It. This is gonna Anya's gonna wrap it all up for us and make it into a really tidy little package. Hey Anya. How's it going? Good. You have an amazing house, by the way. Um, it is so unique. And uh, you married a great guy, Renato. He took me around uh, your your hood there of Jack London Square, and it's really, really cool place. Like the neighborhood is officially developed. Is that it's true? awesome? It's yeah. good. Yeah, it's a great place for us to live because there's like Everything it's kind of still mid-scale industrial. So if I need to get like a 12-inch meat slicer on a day's notice, I can just walk down the street to the restaurant supply store. I can get casings. I can get big blocks of pork fat. I can get all that stuff. And then there's also you know like the little the yuppie stores you know a couple miles away. So it's kind of neat. It's like a good place for for me to live just in terms of what we like to do because there's a produce district there. I can get crates of fennel walking down the street. So Lovely. All good. So, um, can you, uh, well, first we had Taylor on from Fatted Calf, who you knew very well, and um, then, then we had Orléans Dafour, uh, who is the chief charcutier at Bar Balloud and all the Danielle restaurants here in New York City. So, uh, could you speak a little bit about, from your experience, uh, you know, with Eat Real, with Slow Food Nation, uh, with Slow Food, um, you know, your experience a little bit about the state of charcuterie here in the U.S., you know, as compared with in Europe? It's interesting. Um, the demand for good quality charcuterie is definitely present now in the States, and it's driven by people who've been to Europe and tasted it there and want a similar experience. The issue is, I think, that the um, artisan upswelling, like the production, the interest in producing happened so recently that it's kind of after the window of opportunity that we had in terms of USDA regulations and small-scale facilities uh, to be able to produce mid-scale, high-quality products in kind of an, an easy way. So I think the, the state of the, the issue is that there's a rising demand, and it's really hard to find a way to do mid-sized, scalable production of quality products just because the whole production system is not geared to support that type of naturally fermented product. So I think about here in San Francisco, there are two companies, Columbus and Molinari, and they're both family-owned um, Italian-American families that came here in the, the turn of the century and put together you know, beautiful small-scale production facilities and slowly grew over the years, and they now produce pretty industrial products. Uh, and but there's still some you know a, some connection to the artisan kind of old way of doing it. But if you think about the type of interest that there is now in quality whole muscle cuts and and in naturally fermented products, just think about that happening 30 years ago. Those types of companies would have been really well positioned to be able to produce a whole range of amazing products instead of just having you know one remaining naturally cured salami left that's you know with kind of mystery pork. <laughs> really interesting. So, I mean, what's the solution? I mean, are we just still now 20 years away as they navigate all the laws? Or um, have we truly forever, you know, hurt ourselves? Uh, I think that there's got to be a purpose-built 
facilities that are connecting slaughter and uh, and production. I think that will allow a lot more, um, uh, you know, a lot greater ease in terms of doing better quality products. And by that I mean that a slaughter facility is purpose-built, knowing that it, the products are going to be made into a dry-cured charcuterie. I also think these companies just need to be more capitalized because, you know, there is easy ways to, not easy, but there are ways to get around USDA regulations if you can show, hey, I don't have to use as many nitrites because my um, natural fermentation process um, produces enough um, acid through the bacteria action that it naturally knocks out most of the negative bacteria that the USDA is concerned about, which is a, that's a hypothetical. If you can show that through a, a scientific study, um, which costs you know usually thirty to fifty thousand dollars to get one of those things commissioned, then you can get an exemption from some of the regulations. So that's another thing is that getting um, capitalization for some of these companies that's patient capital that'll let it um, let them grow and, and be able to address those sanitation issues or production issues is key. Very interesting. Um, well, uh, Barry, I mean, I wasn't well, expecting Anya, let's, you to let's say Let's talk that. for a second about that because, um, you know, that was making my little wheels spin around because part of the problem that we see over and over on this show is like the lack of basic infrastructure in terms of um, just processing animals. I mean, the slaughterhouse thing, there's not enough of them. Um, they're consolidated in one area, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the whole thing of, of processing facilities and knowing now that people are looking at more of um, the sort of whole animal eating, I guess for lack of a better term, um, do you think that uh, that there will be uh, entities who recognize that this is going to be a viable business solution for them or something that they could actually end up making money on? That so there's is enough, the money coming? Is yeah, is there, enough, is there enough consumer interest, I guess to narrow this down, is there enough consumer interest in these kinds of products in order to drive venture capitalists into that marketplace and say, yes, I'm going to invest in this plant because people are into nose-to-tail eating, they want to use up a whole animal, and, you know, are we then going to find that, that these, uh, you know, investments of forty or $50,000 to make sure that their sanitation is right or that they're following HACCP regulations, is that, all going to, is that all going to come forth, or do you think this is just like a short-term trend where people, like, you know, feel good because they're eating heritage meats, and then that's kind of as far as it goes? Well, I think there's a, a, a lot of evidence that it's a long-term trend. I mean, another piece of this is that there's a big quality driver where people are going for that experience where they love the taste of that charcuterie or of that product. But another one is that they're con- they're, it's a fear thing, you know, that they're concerned about the safety of the other options. I would be. I don't think that many people are. I actually just yesterday processed, a, like a, it was a massive hog. It was 490 pounds carcass weight. Over 700 pounds live weight. Wow. A four-year-old Berkshire. What were you doing with it? We did everything. We made a lot of sausage. We did ferment. I'm actually in my living room right now with a with a big um, fermenting rack next to me. My house is pretty warm and, and smells a little funky. And then we made mortadella and bacon and um, copa di testa and what else? Uh, lardo. Because this guy had like four-inch thick back fat. It was amazing. So that, you know, that's the fun thing of that is that literally at the end of the day we had make one bus tub of bones and one bus tub of just junk, you know, like pieces that we couldn't figure out how to use that right. one of the chefs that was here took with them to the restaurant to make broth out of or something. But that, you know, the, that you take this 700 pounds of living animal and come out with all this stuff that's, you know, that ready to eat year-round and there's just a couple buckets of stuff that you need to throw out. 
I mean, that's like poetic and beautiful, and it, is. it gives me a good feeling, but I don't know how many people are really motivated by like, oh, I'm going to eat this head cheese because I know that I'm helping a farmer optimize revenue off of the whole animal. I don't see that as a big driver for most yeah, that people. that was my question, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think the nose-to-tail thing is kind of like a leading-edge thing. Mm-hmm. I think the flavor um, perspective and also... You know, we realized that, and there's a really significant movement now to eat less meat, and I think that the, the counter response to that is eat less meat, yes, eat a lot less meat, and eat a lot better meat, you know? Yeah, so eat better quality, yeah. Eat better quality and not much of it, and I think that that's the kind of, you know, the direction that where the charcuterie space can flourish is if it's somebody who's eating meat, you know, two times a week instead of seven times a week, that they're going to want an experience that just makes it that much more special and valuable. So I think that's a big piece of it. I also, you know, there's an interesting moment in that there is this interest in charcuterie, and it's illegal to import most charcuterie to the U.S. And so whereas with the artisan cheese movement, there's always a struggle of, okay, well, I buy an American hard cheese for $30 a pound, or I buy a Parmesan for $18 a pound. Right. You know, and, I, and often the quality is pretty much equal. So it's like, okay, well, <laughs> you're supporting the local producer, it's really because the European farmers have a different subsidy system. Uh, Same with really wine, familiar. no? I mean, yeah. similar, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, I just know in Italy, well, the system, but basically their farmers just don't pay taxes. And in a country where tax rate is 40 to 50%, that's pretty significant subsidy, you know? And mm. so it's just hard for American farmers to compete on that. But with the charcuterie, because it's illegal, because of foot and mouth and other things, to bring in basically all cured meats from France and Italy, there's actually a pretty interesting, you know, it's a, it's a pretty great little protectionist moment for the charcuterie industry in the States. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that doesn't, you know, overlap with uh, any kind of flexibility from the USDA to help artisan producers meet that demand. But I think that there's going to be, there's like a little bit more breathing room for, for American producers around charcuterie than in other, which is necessary because of all the regulations that are implicit in it. But it, right. it, to me, it, it, it makes me hopeful about the ability for that to become a real you know, robust. Anya's robust. smart. I know, you are. You're really So smart. Um, I want to ask a question now. Are there any people who are doing it right on a bigger level? Like I'm thinking Chris Cosentino, Paul Bertoli. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, Paul Bertoli, Framani, and um Is that Bocalone. good stuff? I mean, obviously you would never say it's bad, but I mean, is that as good? I mean, is that keeping a culture like equal to that in Italy? Like, yeah, that's what I was For instance, say. with cheese. It's equal here. Some cheeses are as tasty as those in Italy. How would you say the state of charcuterie is in terms of the best available in the world? Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, Paul Bertoli stuff is, is it's a great, um, you know, it's like a semi-industrial, it's a mid, small-scale industrial product, but it's really consistent. He uses good quality pork. And frankly, you know, his kind of counterparts in Italy aren't using the same quality pork because there isn't the same sort of farm-to-table movement there mm-hmm. yet. And so, you know, what do they use there? Commodity pigs? Well, it's so interesting. I mean, like the prosciutto di San Daniela that everybody loves here, that's from like Danish feedlot hogs. I mean, they're not good quality pork. So interesting. And the only guys that are really using source verified quality animals, all of that are super artisan producers that you can't get here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like the, the, the prosciutto di Parma, there's nothing in that regulation for the production denomination of origin that says you have to have hams, hogs from Parma. It's just that you have to salt them in it Parma. It has to be aged in Parma, yeah. That yeah. is crazy. <laughs> so, I mean, is there a movement to fix that? I mean, when you were at Soul Food, or have you heard of Soul Food or some group like it trying to change that, or no? Well, I mean, to some degree, yeah, but it doesn't, I don't think that they can, I don't think that those products are predicated on the 
the on sourcing as a piece of who they are or their de- identity. So I think that I mean they they the role I mean Slovi definitely their response was to say let's just find somebody who's doing a really good prosciutto that is source verified and does have a connection to where the hogs come from and mm-hmm. focus on that. Very you know, interesting. Same with like Brazala from Valtellina, like a lot of these big scale. Um, I mean, a lot of the buffalo mozzarella from Campania is made from American dried milk. Uh, I mean, milk powder. I mean, there's like a lot of scandals on. I mean, it's not a big surprise. There's a certain amount of corruption in Italy, but I mean, there's a lot of that, uh, of evidence around that type of just. I mean, also those products are so. Uh, I mean, the prosciutto San Daniela. Look at how cheap it is. Well, yeah. Berlusconi's 14-year-old girlfriend claims there's no corruption <laughs> in Italy, so take her word for it. Now, let me ask you, uh, Anya, um, hopefully you will do your own show. If there was ever a call, there's one call-in show, it's uh, Greenhorns. If anyone else could pull off a full call-in show, would be you, Anya, in, in your circle. But uh, let me ask you, any interesting news uh, about Eat Real? I mean, uh, if... You're, are you going to other cities in California? Can yeah, you give us we're a- expanding to Los Angeles um, the third week in July. And we're actually in discussions right now about expanding to New York as well for Ooh. either 2011 or 2012. I want to be a truck in that. I want to <laughs> be uh, making, uh, you know, actually Orleans hams. Can you have a little little hog pulled like gelato stand or something? That'd actually, goats. Goats yeah. are the best. Yeah, we're doing uh, goats now. Goat pulled. Okay, perfect. Uh, a- Goat yeah. pulled cart. That's what yeah. I always well, wanted. My mother had a goat cart. Oh, as that, a child. you could do goat ice cream off of goat cart. Yeah, Katie, actually, that was we in the bring a lot of animals. I know. Into the festival, we have chickens and goats and hogs, and so this year we're going to be in LA in Culver City at the Helms Bakery Building. The dates are the the seventeenth and eighteenth of July, That's and then cool. the um, the Oakland event is going to be end of September, okay. the twenty second and twenty third, and then for New York, sit tight. Sooner or later, we'll announce that one. And New York needs it. Is there a website people can go to to keep abreast of all this? It's eatrealfast.com. Eatrealfast.com. Awesome, Anya. Well, thanks so much for being on. I hope you and Renato come on. Uh, often again or just get your own show and let's get it over with because you could educate a lot of <laughs> okay. people. Take care, guys. Ciao. Thanks a lot, Anya. Bye. Five lonely days when I rode into town Down from the mine to lay some money down Stopped at a tavern they called Sweet Princess There I met the girl
I don't know what happened, my head was spinning round I heard a soft voice whisper and stumble to the ground I saw a man lying, my knife deep in his chest And gone was the girl in the red satin dress This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we used to not be able to get a guest. I know. Now and we, now we have, have so many. It was just you block. to reading poetry That's and right. stuff like that. Yeah, doing my Liederkranz poem. Um, um, but anyway, uh, we are uh, broadcasting from the back of Roberta's restaurant. And uh, I'm Katie Kiefer with my partner in crime. Uh, Patrick, Patrick Martin. And one of the things that Katie and I have most learned as we've done more shows is that it is better when other people do the talking. And so there's a series of segments that are now going to become real institutions on behalf of the network. They're going to be played on other shows. They're going to be played on this show. That's right. They're the true experts. People like Sam Edwards, you know, to talk about the state of Virginia and charcuterie on the East Coast. Taylor, Renato and Anya with great yeah. correspondence Amazing. for the whole yeah. world. We're working with some, we're actually, uh, Jack and I are in touch with somebody from Chicago who's going to start bringing us dispatches from the Midwest. You touch someone in Chicago? Uh, yeah, we talked to somebody in Chicago. Very nice. High tech stuff, all that. Yeah. And uh, and the person who I'm personally most excited about is uh, Michael Hurwitz because this is a local station you know yeah. it's here and he comes in and gives us the state of he gives the, the state largest of green market network or farmers market network of any city maybe in the world or it's certainly in the country so uh, 26 or no is it more markets now? oh it's more than that it's 40 something 51 right? markets 51 markets oh my god gonna open two new ones this year how many farmers and how many acres does that represent we have two, a little over 230 producers. Mm-hmm. It's about 85% are farming. So we have some fishmongers. We have some uh, bakers and some processors. But 85% are, are actively farming. It represents about 14,000 cultivated acres and 30, over 30,000 that are preserved from the, developer, the developers. Hmm. Fantastic. Very interesting. Those are beautiful statistics. So um, since we're going to stick with the theme, so yeah, you will we, we be hearing talking, Michael. We're yeah. talking about meat. We were so talking Katie, about meat. So let's talk about the, the role of meat, the growing role of meat in the farmer's market makeup. Like, you know, I mean, in the past, I think people really thought the farmer's market was all about, you know, vegetables. But as time has gone on, you've incorporated more and more protein salesmen, for lack of a better term. Um, so let's talk about who those guys are and what, what they're, you know, what they're bringing in and, and what's great about it. Sure. Um, I started in February 2007 at Green Market, and I would say we had about a dozen or so livestock producers. In the past... Uh, four years, we've had 40 new livestock producers wow. come into the program. Although some of that is it's a little misleading because about 23 of them were raising other products and recognized that incorporating livestock into the rotation was one going to be better for their farm maintenance, mm-hmm. and two was going to bring in terms more terms of fertilizer, all those it, things exactly, and then also was going to increase their revenue diversify what they can bring to market, and also extend their season. Right. So we also, four years ago, only had 15 year-round markets, and now we have 22 year-round markets Hmm. because the products are there. Right. And And I love that theme with charcuterie because, I mean, charcuterie was about 
figuring out some way of keeping some food year yeah, round, basically to survive the, the winter. Yeah, exactly. That was a survival. So, tactic. Michael, are you seeing since we've been talking about charcuterie this whole for this whole program? Are you seeing like not people just bringing in steaks and chops, but are they also bringing in things like sausages, mm-hmm. bacon across the board uh, and dried stuff. and also byproducts? Right. We have goat sausage. Mm-hmm. We have. Cool. Duck bacon, duck kielbasa, and across the board, absolutely. It's the value-added products and just the, awesome. the cuts you'd, you'd expect. So tell us the iteration, maybe in the history of your career at Green Market, like how that has evolved. Is there more of it, like all of a sudden, and was there any 10 years ago? Yeah, how did the demand for that start? How do you, how do you see that trajectory, trajectory yeah. um, evolving here? Well, I, I, you know, I think that we've had this general theme of the public becoming more aware of the relationship between food and health, whether it be the environment or personal health, and nothing like meat addresses those two issues, right? Industrially produced meat production, from what I understand, is about 18% of the greenhouse gases from uh, alone, and we actually have meat producers that are carbon neutral, if not carbon negative on on the farm. So I think the general public... There's a there's a growing demand for proteins that actually can sustain our bodies in the environment, as opposed to destroy it. Um, so really, I mean that, and that's what we've seen. So whether it's the Michael Pollans of the world or the food inks and people actually understand knowing what it what a CAFO looks like and what the implications are, I think that that has absolutely led to a growing demand. Mm-hmm. I think that also. The reality of agriculture, you know, the need to diversify. Uh, we see our dairy industry dying in, in this state. Not for long. Not for long. That's ex- exactly. Well, I guess we'll we'll, we'll get we'll there. We'll fix that we're, in we're the gonna, next five years. That'll be another program, but yeah. Um, but you know, even our goat cheese producers, uh, they're starting to bring in that kid. Yeah. You know, the sheep, uh, the, the the sheep's milk goat, uh, cheese producers are are bringing in in lamb. Yeah. Um, How much is it the producers wisening up access to the internet, seeing what else is out there, recognizing that Americans are more open to trying things like goat that you know in the past have been relegated to sort of like the you know just uh, other countries. You know, it's it's a it's it's a real combination. It's people taking taking a risk, trying new things. Uh, It's us going to and actively trying to recruit. Mm -hmm. Um, or saying to some of our producers, "Why don't you bring in what you what you what otherwise you're sending sending off farm and making no money on?" Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really a combination of, of factors, and and now I mean now is the time, and we and we see it in the numbers, and it's across the board. It's veal, it's beef, it's goat, it's duck, it's turkey, it's goose, it's ostrich, it's rabbit, pork, lamb, quail, like whatever can, really can be produced in the region is what we're starting to see at market. Now, you must be ahead of the diversity trend uh, because since the farmers are selling directly to the public, they don't always have to go to a USDA plan. It's not for resale, right? So they have more of a network in place to support them? Well, no. No, okay. Actually, um, with the exception of the poultry, everything is coming from a USDA plant. So they face the same challenges as everybody else does from theft to long waits to dis- long distances yeah um i mean there are more and more restaurants there are a lot i don't know i didn't wasn't here for the previous segment but a lot more restaurants and and butcher shops are actually that they don't need to be usda so yes we are seeing more products go through those venues 
But as far as market's concerned, it's a it's a different type of it, the rules still apply. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, and um, yeah. And so, what are some of the farmers? Are you allowed to name some of the farms and some of the markets that are kind of cutting edge for our listeners to go and see and meet these guys? At, absolutely. Um, I'll I'll do it, but break In down no by, particular by, order by variety. And I'll, some of the things that I that I think are pretty cool is <clears throat> you have Wilklow Orchards, right? Wilklow Orchards. How do you spell that? W I L as in Larry, uh, K L O W. Okay. And they're at Brooklyn Borough Hall and Fort Greene, uh, and they sell their meat at Grand Army Plaza in in Brooklyn, and also at the, actually at the Staten Island Ferry Terminal on the on the Manhattan side. No kidding. And they, for the last thirty years, were only bringing in mostly orchard fruit and uh, a little bit of veg. And about three years ago, they recognized if they had beef and pork, they really could extend, again, extend their season and bring new revenue. And it was missing at their markets. They saw a market opportunity. And it's, it's some of the best and actually some of the most affordable in the program. And when, in talking to Fred, he said, you know, I looked at my grandfather's crop plans and, and farm maps from 100 years ago. And there were 5,000 currant bushes. Hmm. And all cattle there was no orchard and so he loves the fact that he's getting back to what his farm's roots actually were Mm -hmm. um you have dan gibson from grazing angus who used to be the chief marketing operator for starwood hotels and when 9-11 hit his son went off to iraq and he read omnivore's dilemma and he said this is not the world i want to live in Mm -hmm. and he moved uh to to kinderhawk and started bringing black angus raising black angus and his meat is i think he has truly mastered the grass finished product um yeah that's not so easy what he studied he's studied grasses and increased certain fats Mm -hmm. he lets them uh, grow age a little bit longer so they they actually can can gain more weight and his product also is phenomenal and he's at a number of markets also from union square to carroll gardens Mm -hmm. 77th street um 77th in Columbus. 77th in Columbus, exactly. Um, I, you know, we've seen Scottish Highlanders come into, into the program. Um, some uphill farm now brings in Tamworth pigs and Oxford lamb and belted Galloway. Um, What's the average price uh, per pound of, say, some of these uh, fancy grass-finished yeah. uh, beef cattle, yeah. for instance? There's a there's a wide range. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some that are, I think, expensive. So we're talking... Well, middle meats tend to be... I mean, if you're going to buy a strip steak, if you're buying commodity strip, good quality commodity strip, it's 17, 15, 18, 15 yeah. to 18 a pound. Right. And I'd say and this is probably... And if it's organic grass finished... This is probably 10 times as much. No, just no, kidding. no. <laughs> it's like, what? It's like more $5 more a pound? It's at e- least. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, on, on average, That's I'd say... That's not about, much. And, and, and so it's, 22... I'd say twenty two to twenty seven. Twenty seven. And that's the high that's, that's the high end. We uh-huh. we have we do have producers who are are not even close to that expensive and it's probably on par, because um, they figured out some type of efficiency on the on, on the farm. Right. Or it's it's not their main main product. 
Um, well, you still I have, have a, to pay for getting the animal to the slaughterhouse, having it processed, which, and then driving into and the then city driving and, into and the setting city, up marketing a cost. I mean, I guess if you're going to come into the city anyway to bring your whatever, your apples or your cabbages or blah, 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 then having that product with you is just, as That's you right. say, added value. And, makes sense. And every one of the, of the livestock producers has a deal one week to the next. Right. They're, mm-hmm. they're trying to move cert, certain products. You will always be able to find at, at market a deal on on the proteins. Sure. You know, it, also, a, it also introduced you to, to new cuts that you're not necessarily that's, used to. That was my next question. And, and having the opportunity to talk to the market managers, yeah. re- recipes there, but more more importantly than to the farmer themselves to say, you know, I don't have don't want to spend this much money. What else can you recommend? Right. Do you have a shoulder cut, for instance? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like a petite medallion, like we sell at Heritage Foods USA, which is a really nice little steak. It comes out of this little muscle in the shoulder. It looks just like a fillet. It tastes even better. It's pretty tender. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so, the uh, stuff that you want to see the farmers being able to educate the population about, so right. that they really do. It's want not to buy trying that. to educate. It's trying to sell the animal. I mean, it's well, like it's they're not trying the to animal, educate. But I mean, most people don't know. The, the two go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. If they you really don't do. know what to do with a flat iron steak or with a brisket, even or something yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. that, then, then it becomes you're not going to buy it. So I have a pain in the butt question because we have a couple more minutes and this is going to be, like I say, a very recurring segment, uh, you know, talking about the local farms and their situation. I'm fascinated by this because, you know, I've always secretly thought that sandwiches and and people should be able to have a meal at the at the green market so where do you draw the line with charcuterie because it's an interesting thing beef jerky Mm -hmm. a salami it's already cooked you could just put it between two pieces of bread and all of a sudden they're breaking the rule no we love it we actually love it um because it's prepared in a 20c facility somewhere else off farm it's ready to eat Mm -hmm. but it's not being reheated to serve it's exactly what we want to see at market. And, is and heat let me the tell issue? You, heat is heat is mostly the issue. We're having actually, we're actually having some heat issues li- lately around slicing cheese at market or, or, and making or, a cheese sandwich. Well, forget about forget about even the cheese sandwich. We're actually having some issues with the, the with the State Department of Agriculture and Markets with just slicing cheese at market right now. Wow, what a drag! And this is this is why we've had the conversations we've had, and it, it's as frustrating as can be. And we're going to have to work with some of our, our colleagues around around the state to educate ag and markets mm-hmm. and to work together to find something that they can live with around food safety issues, but also that provides a marketplace and a thriving marketplace mm-hmm. that where consumers want to go and interact and actually taste things and try things and yeah. Stay for the day. Now, how have these government officials, who's our new senator, what's her name? Uh, Not Gyllenhaal. Gillibrand. uh, Um, How have they been Uh, where you need them to be? She's fantastic. And and what what I was just referring to was on on the state level. But she fought um, with the most recent uh, food safety laws that were were passed on the federal level. She fought for the tester amendment and the manager's amendment to be in there. Mm-hmm. And listen, every no one is against food safety regulation. We no, just want it to not be one size fit all, and to recognize that there are different forms of agriculture. And let's focus on what science tells us, and let's make sure that food is safe. And and and, and again, the irony is that we're talking about food safe. There's plenty of unsafe food out there. I could go to McDonald's right now, and it wouldn't be safe food. Be food that I'm actually going to put in actually, my body. Actually, McDonald's they have a yeah. very very rigorous uh, but remember right. Katie has but turned to the enemy about, now yeah. she's like Darth Vader might, we, I am, I'm, I'm I might not get side. sick those stockings are white ones. I might not get sick bacterially <laughs> from my McDonald's meal 
but I'm certainly it's not going to make me yeah, a, hel- you're not a healthier yourself. Well, it's not making it's me a healthier products, human being by I'm eating it I'm not sure it. it's the beef that's so much the problem is all of the mix the things that go in with it sure uh, alright alright Katie stop okay, we're not defending gonna go. Cargill I like to be you like a little provocative about this stuff because but I think there's a tendency to go for the knee jerk thing yeah, and they really are just, underdogs I think it's important to be very specific about what is and what isn't the problem well Mark Newman and, says uh, you could eat off the floor of almost any very major slaughterhouse in and the that country. Is true. So I mean, there is a ba- and I mean, she's friends with the uh, Kurt, true, uh, Temple Grandin now. So I know Mike. You're fighting Mark. bigger battles than us. You've already expanded past <laughs> HRN. <laughs> Michael, you'll be on hopefully again. Yeah, because we're going to talk month. more about the food thing. Because Patrick made a very good point to me the other day Thank about you. he was in um, San Francisco last week and and how it's it's actually when you go to the farmers market in San Francisco, you go for the day. It's like a family outing, and you eat, you drink, you sure. sample, you talk, yep. and we don't have that same culture here. So no, that's but, but our next there, discussion. There's something that you have to add on to that is that a number of the farmers that started at those markets are no longer there because people didn't come to go grocery shopping. They came to sit and talk and hang out and buy the prepared right. foods, and then their money was gone, or maybe they grabbed a thing here or there. They weren't going there to buy food they for their family. Really In fact, yeah, and that's why the market has changed. Market to, Very to, interesting to point, Michael. Sandwich. Oh, yeah. we have a fun discussion coming up at our next let's, visit. Let's, let's talk it. about After that. After this show, we're going to have uh, one more ge- uh, guest uh, talking about a very interesting company called Foodie Link. But that's right. we are going to talk Tingle about the cheese because that will be a, a subject. Of, uh, and Ann Sachs will be just enlightening me with all these cool facts. So okay. Go Steelers. We'll come back. Thanks uh, a lot, Michael. Really appreciate you coming We're going to come back with a five minute segment a very interesting social network for food yay back. Uh, this is the main course on Heritage Radio Network with uh, Patrick Martins. Katie I like Keeper. the song you picked, Jack. Yeah, very nice. Our producer and engineer today is Jack Kinsley. Thank you, Jack. Um, we just Cherry wrapped Holmes up. Cherry all the time. Cherry Holmes all the time, every day. And um, and we just wrapped up a little segment with Michael Hurwitz, who will be joining us on a regular basis now to give us updates on the green market. Um, our previous guest, of course, was uh, Orléans from Orléans. Barbelou. It's very Anya hard to Fernald say. From, uh, 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 Anya Fernald from... Anya Fernald joined us from California and now we have Mark Dingle from foodielink.com is that right? Yes that, that's correct. So tell us about Foodie Link that is so cool I looked at the website it was like a really neat idea Well that's great to hear well we, we set out a couple years ago to build a, a site that would really be a community for people that are interested in learning more about uh, about good food just about you know food in general and then where to get it um, which we've been talking about uh, a bit uh, in the last in the last program, so um, you know the idea was to really leverage the best uh, sort of the proven social media applications and and really focus on local you know for the local good food movement. 
So we've just focused on New York. Our first site, which we launched on President's Day last uh, last year, which I built with a few people I know from from college and from just uh, being in New York and working. And my background is was working uh, for internet startups and consulting in the late nineties. Financial the boom industry, time, and then at American Express. I could tell because you used the word leverage. <clears throat> Have I used leverage already? You used the word three leverage. times. <laughs> Yeah, that, that is probably the most overused word in business. I can spot a suit a mile away as soon as they drop that anyway, one. But anyway, that, I call it the L-bomb. <laughs> so, so basically, getting a little suit, Sorry, suit heat, but I'm really not a suit. I, I'm not getting paid like a suit. Basically, we uh, started uh, to, to, I wanted to create, I've always been passionate about uh, the environmental, about environmentalism, about, um, and, and really a fan of social entrepreneurship. So how so, does Foodie Link help? So Foodie Link, basically, um, right now, we've relaunched the site about a week ago and what we want to do is really be a, a really to merchants a marketing platform to be able to educate cool. as we talked about educate and entice uh, as well through good deals and and through great food events to get people involved and taking those steps to learn about and access good food product so um, we we kind of retool the perch uh, the, the platform uh, about uh, over the you know last couple months um, with it, uh, my CTO Jason Lance who's based in uh, Brooklyn and um, we basically created the ability now for merchants to be able to manage their profile so they can come in grab their profile cool. edit it and then they can be in charge of posting deals and events to the site so, so you for just instance, create a if platform. we had uh, an excess of Boston butts one week <clears throat> we could use foodie link to help us exactly or if someone sold eight other varieties of chutney but not the other two they could offer a deal and people could benefit exactly i mean you look at what's going on in the deal this this I kind of very this. hyped up deal space you know we we, we we we've come up with the uh, tagline which we're still trying to get on the site but deals that you actually want and they're targeted right at good foodies and so we want to leverage that you know sort of the power of internet and social you know social networking and sharing to get to, to be to really be a win for both the consumers and the merchants merchants mm-hmm. around moving that's a great example because everybody in a way every a business like mine needs a <clears throat> quote-unquote commodity outlet and i mean that is that you make a little bit less but you're moving it yeah because yeah, right. the worst yeah. thing for a business like it's mine to have inventory, inventory. yeah i mean we wouldn't well, we be able to survive that doesn't sell no we don't where mm. would we sell it to if it's not going mail order we are literally throwing it out we used to throw stuff out when we were very, very young. The point is, is at some price, it has to be moved. Right. Now, if you have a huge yeah. warehouse, store it. and th- But then you're also working with two tiers of a frozen inventory, a fresh yeah, one. Yeah, and that's not good. Get rid of it fresh. It's the yeah. best way of surviving. And it also keeps you focused. You never get lazy. And um, a website like this is very We'll be talking, Mark. No. <laughs> Great. No, I mean, really, anybody listening who's got... One of the things we want to do, too, with Foodie Link that uh, we've talked about, Patrick, is really become a cross-promotion platform for good food merchants so whether you're the you know a meat maker and you can there's an opportunity to work with a local brewery to leverage each other's using the word leverage especially for you thank you uh, i you love know, it collective you makes know. me all warm <laughs> can you tag the word leverage jack <laughs> So basically, to to really you know tap into each other's because you know you look at one of the challenges that the good food merchants have, and we want to see a shift in share and continue the shift of share of people buying really good, healthier, more sustainable food products. It's it's that marketing reach. So there's an opportunity for complementary food merchants merchants to be able to reach each other and through good deals yeah. and through events. For instance, a uh, pig guy who has whey. <clears throat> And yeah. a cheese, or no, a, mm-hmm. a cheesemaker that creates way 
goes to the pig guy, their pigs Who will eat it. way. So, yeah, you know, this right. as, a, as a concept, uh, you know. Well, that's a real B2B. How'd you like that? Was that's, that good? You're, you're, B2B? You got some chops yeah. here, honestly. <laughs> You're officially a Republican now. Good job. That my association with Cargill, yeah. You're not just a good food granola. You've yeah. got some, no, no some earthy real... crunchy hair, baby. Can you tell us? Uh, can you tell? Are you guys going to make out in a second? In God, a minute, this is yeah. out of control. You guys love each other. It's great. No, I think it's a really smart no, it idea. Is. I like this. A can lot. you give us the website? Yeah. So it's it's just foodie f o o d i e link dot com. So encouraging everybody to join as members. Mm-hmm. Sign up. It takes a minute or two. We're going to cost to merchant. join. How much? No, it's, it's free and it's free for merchants right now too. As we Heritage build up Foods our is going to do it. Yeah, we'll be on there. Right. You have to Excellent. stop asking. I'm the least tech savvy guy. I'm still. I'm like www. He's what a the hell does yeah. that mean? <laughs> yeah. But um, well, very very interesting. So thank you so much for coming on. That's foodielink.com. Yeah. Thanks um, for having me. I want to thank uh, Michael Horowitz, Orléans, Dufour. I want to thank Anya Bernald and Taylor Boddicker. This yeah. is a really great what show. A kick-ass show. We've been engineered by Jack Inslee. We thank you too, Jack. And we thank our sponsor, Hearst Ranch, for their sponsorship today and every day. Next week, we're going to come back with um, Betsy Pakoda. I forget who we're going to come back yes. with. But Jeffrey Steingarten, no, yeah. Betsy Pakoda, Michael Anthony from Gramercy Tavern. Gus Schumacher. I mean, we have a Temple Grandin. I mean, we have amazing guests coming We're the up. best food show on the airwaves. Stay we tuned. know that. It's official. By the way, we're coming back with an interview. Mark Newman, Remy Alfonso, Michael Hudman, Greg Esmond. It's all about awesome. Southern restaurants and Southern farms. Yeah. Stay tuned for that. That's going to be great. So, welcome back to the main course. Uh, we have some... Uh, national celebrity guests uh, in town so first i want to introduce mark newman uh pig farmer from uh missouri um how's it welcome to the show thank you patrick first time on the show well tell us why are you in town and tell us a little bit about what you do i mean i've been to your farm uh, three four times and uh, i'm a big fan but uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing in new york and what you do otherwise otherwise I'm in New York uh, for the Kashan 555. The uh, the idea was that we uh, we would come and represent the product that we raise on our farm in southern Missouri. We are a little less than a 200 sow operation with all of the uh, animals running outside on pasture. Uh, they cross the whole the. All the pens are divided up into into one acre lots as far as with the farrowing of the sows, the gestation of the sows is in 15 acre pens. But we do it 100% outdoors. Okay. There, uh, there, there's no type of a, of a confinement. What our goal is, is uh, we, we have a feeling and, and always have had that you cannot inspect quality into a product. That, that the quality of the product starts at the time of conception and follows all the way through uh, in, in, within the pig business uh, from the time the sow's feral all the way through the nursery stages outdoors our pigs are raised uh, in, in an environment that uh, we'd like to say they're on green grass all the time so um what what percentage of the industry now i know there's might be a guy in upstate new york that raises three pigs so notwithstanding that category of farm what percentage of the industry is like you in terms of complete 100 percent outdoor no antibiotic purebred production uh probably less than one tenth of one percent 
really? today. I mean, uh, you know, we know that uh, greater than 95% of all the pigs in America are raised in, indoors in uh, total confinement. Now, why why is that? I mean, I understand, uh, you know, why don't more people do like you do? Like, even if it was some, like, rich guy that goes back to the farm or just some old school guy, why are you less than one-tenth of one percent? Well, I mean, today within the pork industry, I mean, uh, it's it's a struggle to make a profit. And whenever you're outdoors, I mean, you, you have the you have some inefficiencies, and I mean that's what drove the the, the concentrated pork production to the indoor situation was uh, was to increase production. You know, today we have uh, we have several hundred thousand less sows today in production across America, but we're raising more and more pigs every day from these indoor operations. Our goal is to is to is to do it the old way. The old sustainable type of agriculture. Absolutely. Now, if you could, just for our listeners, since you're one of the experts, give us the headlines in like under a minute of the history of the U.S. pig industry. Well, if if you back up into the the 40s and the 50s and the 60s in my part of Missouri and southern Missouri, there it was the feeder pig industry. Pigs were raised all outdoors, small family farms, 35 to 45 sows that were making uh, 100% of their income on the farm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in, the, in the county that I live in, in Oregon County, Missouri, and the adjacent county of Howe County, Missouri, there were over 700 pork producers even in the mid-70s that were making a living from the feeder pig production. And a feeder pig is basically uh, you farrowed the sow outdoors, you, you took the pig to 40 to 50 pounds, you took it to a sale barn, it was auctioned off for, for a price, and those animals were all moved to the upper Midwest where the corn was at. You know, where I'm located is one of the best places in America to raise pigs. I mean, we we have a great uh, we we have a great climate for it. We we have all four seasons of the year, but it, it's it's cheaper land. It's a it, it's a unique way to do it. But at the same time, I mean, you you have to follow. I mean, everybody followed the efficiencies. But it's one of the worst regions for grains and for feed, right? Oh, all of our all of our feed inputs are, are have to be put underneath rubber tires and I mean they primarily our feed either comes from Illinois or, or, or Iowa and uh, we get four or five hundred miles underneath this which is very expensive today corn is uh, uh, around seven dollars a bushel mm-hmm. and uh, you know we don't know where it's going to stop uh, for people in my situation on, on the small farm basis and, and living in an area that there is no grain production it makes it uh, financially uh, very tough so um i know you're very active in the farmer market and local restaurant scene down in missouri uh, uh down in the ozarks and uh, you're part of your farm is actually in arkansas so i always think arkansas when i say uh, newman farm but it's it borders missouri and arkansas you have uh, some friends that uh, followed you uh, to new york this trip so uh i just want to introduce um michael hudman uh, Greg Esmond and uh, Remy Al- Alfonso. And uh, how did you uh, come to convince these guys to do this culinary gastronomic tour with you and, and get so drunk in New York City? Well, I, I mean, I mean, it, it started back several years ago. My connection started with uh, with Rennie whenever he became executive chef at the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. And he was one of the very first in the South that was interested in knowing where his pork came from. Mm-hmm. 
He called me up one day, asked if he could come up and take a tour of the farm. He brought a couple of chefs with him. Uh, it, we spent the whole day on the farm. After that, Rennie came back several times. We started doing business and selling pork to him in Memphis, and then uh, it, it grew from there. Okay. Well, uh, let's start here. Um, just do a, a little bit. Um, you know, we'll just go in order. So, uh, Michael. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your great Italian restaurant in the great city of Memphis, and uh, just tell us a little bit about how you got there, and and uh, tell us a little bit about the restaurant and the website and, and all that. Definitely, uh, yeah. We uh, just a small old house in Memphis that we converted into a uh, a restaurant. Uh, it's with uh, my one of my best friends and business partner, Andy Tyser. Uh, the name of the restaurant's Andrew Michael Italian Kitchen. Uh, we really focus as much as possible on uh, farm to f- farm to table. I guess is the best way to do it. Uh, all the pastas we make from scratch uh, every day. Only open for dinner uh, Tuesday through Saturday. Uh, the website's andrewmichaelitaliankitchen.com, and uh, we really try to showcase people who work like the farmers we work with as much as possible. Uh, Newman Farms pork, since we're talking about that, is the only pork that's ever been in our restaurant, mm-hmm. and it's the only one we use. Uh, Mark actually delivers our pork to us you know every other week we get whole pigs in nice. we try to we do as much as we can you know it's it is a house but we do as much of the uh, whole animal as possible we're really trying to take that and run with it to where you know like for instance the uh, newman farm dish on the menu is uh, it changes one day it could be from the ham could be from the shoulder could be from the loin could so be. it'll always say newman farm but the cut will change exactly yeah and that way you know uh when we were studying in italy we in italy we lived with the family and got to take part in, into a, a slaughter and the way that they respect the animal and the way that they used every bit of it really kind of went off with Andy and I, so mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a, we're trying to take it, and Memphis is being great, and they're being really receptive, and it's, 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 it's a good thing to do. Now, you went to Lupa today, which is, uh, you know, respected as one of the best restaurants, Italian style, in, in the city, so how is that different, like, and how is your food different, and would a restaurant like Lupa be successful in Memphis, like, is Italian food different in the South, or is it just the same? I think uh, a, a Lupa would be def- it would definitely be successful anywhere, especially Memphis. Uh, what we try to do, and I guess to, it, it, Italian food and European food is all about your region, so we'll do, like, we have a menu, on, a dish on the menu right now, it's black bean, black eyed pea tortellini. So uh-huh. we're using local black eyed peas, and we try to take the where you. It's kind of like you know fusion. Such a terrible, such a, a bad word, but where you take what we the ingredients that we have around us and the ingredients that we're familiar with: black eyed peas, collard greens, pork, and then you take our techniques that we learned in Italy making pasta fresh or mm-hmm. doing that and kind of twisting it like that very interesting uh this guy um a good uh, friend of mine who who's the mario carbone from teresi specialty foods he said essentially italian food is using local ingredients that's it well, so it, it can be a very open all, all over the place cuisine in a good yeah, way definitely when we were in italy literally i mean each town the farmer i mean the, their farmers market they don't have grocery stores it's all whatever they have or what they grow and uh it you know it just really it shines out in the product you absolutely know? I always ask, uh, they always make fun of each other. Northerners always make fun of Southerners in Italy. So when I lived out there, I was like, where's the line? And, you know, like, where's that one line where they're like, everyone south of here they make fun of. And some guy once said to me, the line is the first town south of you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of a funny answer. Well, now we have um, Greg Esmond, um, and you're from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Yeah, Fairville, Arkansas. Yeah, that's correct. I'm the executive chef at a restaurant uh, by the name of Bordino's Restaurant and Wine Bar. It's in uh, 
Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the university is. It's uh, kind of a big place. We're loosely Italian, French-based. Um, we're I just took over about six months ago as the executive chef, so we're moving it more in the direction of uh, using more of the local producers. Uh, I've known Mark for about two, two and a half years. I spent two weeks on his farm with him, um, learning about how he raises his pork and through a foundation grant that I got. But they, I mean, it's since I took over, we've been using his pretty much exclusively using more, uh, bringing in more whole hogs and some of the lambs that he produces, um, breaking those down and doing various things with them, building a uh, charcuterie and meat curing program that we've started. So you're one of the first guys to use Newman lamb, right? Uh, they've been, these guys have been using it for longer. I just, I found Mark, uh, when I was working to do some, an educational research, uh, work grant through the Jean-Louis Paladin Foundation and found Mark and was interested in what he was doing with the outdoor race hogs and, and how he was and why he was doing what he was doing. And he put me up in his house for two weeks and I spent a lot of time in the truck with him going back and forth and doing various things, but really learning how it was raised and, you know, in an effort like, you know, to get back to knowing where where it's coming from and why. What are the things that you learned most about those two weeks? Uh, I mean, living two weeks on an outdoor farm, back and forth to the various paddocks to feed the pigs, like, what do you carry with you the most uh, from that experience? Just that if you, that the, the quality of life is going to determine the quality of, the, of how it tastes. It's not, I mean, if you, if you're raising it properly and really raising it well and giving it you know, giving the animal what it needs and it's happy and it's, you know, they've got space or room to run and root and screw around and they're, you know, they're happier, they're living a better quality of life. The meat is going to be so much better quality because they're living the way they're supposed to rather than being stressed and, you know, just learned about the whole process of how each little detail throughout its life, uh, how that will determine its final quality as opposed to, um, you know, one of the things Mark talks about a lot is the stressing the animal before processing you know that's i had never thought about that but then it makes you know as he explained it and i went through the whole process with him you know you can see and understand how it all comes together in the end so anyway sorry i interrupted a little bit so you say you also have a charcuterie program uh we're just starting to build one we've got um i mean we've got uh we're in a place now where we've got a good staff to work with and that's they're uh interested in doing that so we're you know, we're bringing the whole animal, and you got to use every part of it. Otherwise, I mean, we do whatever we can to not waste any part of it. So, you know, sitting there, we've got tails and ears and heads, and really trying to, you know, it's 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 a more conservative dining scene in uh, Northwest Arkansas. Surprise, but they've been really receptive to it. So when we first started, you know, getting people to taste, you know, Copa de Testa, and doing, you know, things with the ears, and they were at first they were really hesitant, but you know they've we're developing a relationship and they're really in you know they're willing to try it and go out on a limb and really enjoy it so you're pushing the envelope with the Fayetteville clientele are there other restaurants that are kind of serving pig ear salad or trying to get in, the in tail? Fayetteville no yeah. no you're oh, the no. only one hell no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no it's Fayetteville <laughs> well very very impressive and um, how can people learn more about your restaurant is there a website uh, we do we've actually just got a, a brand new website it's www.bordinos.com um, B-O-R-D-I-N-O uh, B-O-R-D-I-N-O-S okay. dot com and then um, you can also follow us on Facebook they um, it's the best way to do it reservations are open table or just give us a call or 
we've got all kinds of space for walking so it's great absolutely well thanks so much for being on and now uh <coughs> we will uh conclude the interview with uh, the man responsible for the uh the newman renaissance in the south uh <laughs> remy alfonso although now you're a northerner right uh you become a yankee i've become a yankee moved to philly about two months ago well tell us a little bit about your history as a chef and uh, where you are now I met you first when you were at the historic Peabody Hotel in Memphis. Yeah, I was down at the Peabody. I uh, moved down there about five and a half years ago. And um, been doing fine dining my whole life. I lived up here in New York for a while. I worked at Le Bernardin. Really? And, uh, great. And, I, you know, I always loved the North, but I had to move. Uh, I moved down to Memphis. I had a great position down there. And uh, I became a Newman Farm groupie right from the beginning, pretty much. Uh, you know, I met Mark. I went out to the farm. And pretty much it reminded me of what I grew up with in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just the way things are raised and stuff. Um, not as much alcohol was involved when I was a kid, but now it's a little different with Mark. And, uh, you know, bottom line was I was just looking for the best product out there. I had just gotten back from Austria and spent some time on a Mangalitza farm out there, um, slaughtering pigs and doing that type of thing. And, um, came back to the states wanting to reproduce it and uh the best things i found was the berkshire pigs uh raised in missouri which was in my backyard mm -hmm. so it's funny it was local to you then and yet it still was uh, far away you know in some ways until you made the connection yeah it was local and you know if you ever would have told me a few years ago that i would be in missouri one day you know hanging out with mark and <laughs> buying pigs from there and showcasing his product and I would have probably punched you in the face. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's it's become a great relationship. We've become good friends over the years. It's great knowing where your product comes from. And um, I love going out to the farm. Every chance I, I had back then, not so much anymore. Mm -hmm. But uh, going out there and be like, I want that one next week, you know. <laughs> and you get it. And we got it. And, you know, seeing what they do and people that are passionate about what they're doing just brings out the better quality product not just for me to work with, but for everybody else to enjoy. Now tell me where you are in Philadelphia. Are you with the Star Restaurant Group? We're with Star Restaurant Group. Um, I'm at Alma de Cuba Restaurant. It's almadecuba.com. Um, the Sola Cuba, it's a modern Latin restaurant. Um, I'm the You're first doing actual your Costa Rican uh, heritage a little bit? Well, I'm actually Cuban background, oh. so I'm the first actual Cuban chef there hmm. uh, in the history of the restaurant. So we're trying to... Um, just go with it and uh, re reintroduce it to the public in Philly. It's been there for about 10 years, and it's a very successful restaurant. We just want to take it to the next level now. Yeah, you were saying you do, how many covers did you do last night? Uh, we did about 480. That's intense. Do you do a Cubano sandwich? Uh, I'm putting one on next week. So what's the secret? Because there's such a <laughs> wide variety of quality when it comes to a Cubano. What makes uh, a good Cubano to you? In or my opinion, the most one? important thing on a Cuban sandwich is the bread. If the bread's not right, nothing else matters. Now Newman's going to punch you in the face. He's no. Like, You're supposed to say the pork. Because if you I've, you go to a lot of places and they'll do it with a baguette. Now the, the baguette takes away from the, in, the inside of the sandwich of what a Cuban is. Now if you roast it properly, you know, you spend all the time roasting your pork and all that stuff. But you're having a hard time getting into it because the bread's too hard. Mm -hmm. It defeats the purpose. So the bread is just like, shall I say, the chip to deliver, <laughs> the vessel to deliver your uh, roast pork experience. Very good. Well, um, you can meet. Um, actually, this show is this uh, segment is going to air right before Cochon Five Five Five. So you can meet all four of these guys at Cochon uh, later today, 
And, um, you know, best of luck to the uh, Newman Pig. Am I allowed to say who's cooking it? Right, yes. that's not a secret. It's going to be Peter Hoffman and Shauna Pacifico, who's been a co-host on uh, the main course a bunch of times. So um, they're going to be doing a real interesting dish. And I know uh, these four guys went over and uh, saw the pig firsthand and, and heard exactly what was happening with it. So um, walk up to them, congratulate them, taste their pig, and... Uh, and vote for uh, Peter Hoffman. So um, anyway, well, thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll be back for uh, another segment on, uh, on the main course.